0: We're about to move into our Bible readings and our sermon. We're continuing our series in 1 Samuel at the moment. And we're going to be looking at today how God's plan endures even through our own and even through God's people's bad choices. God's plan endures. Let me pray before we have our Bible readings. Please pray with me.
1: Almighty God, we thank you for the gift of your holy word. May it be a lantern to our feet, a light to our paths, and a strength to our lives. Take us and use us to love and serve all people in
0: the power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We'll have the Bible readings now.
1: Today's reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 9. There was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becharath, the son of Ephiah of Benjamin. He had a son named Saul, an impressive young man without equal among the Israelites, a head taller than any of the others. Now the donkeys belonging to Saul's father, Kish, were lost. And Kish said to his son, Saul, take one of the servants with you and go and look for the donkeys. So he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and through the area of Shalisha, but they did not find them. They went on into the district of Shalim but the donkeys were not there. Then he passed through the territory of Benjamin, but they did not find them. When they reached the district of Zuf, Saul said to the servant who was with him, come, let's go back or my father will stop thinking about the donkeys and start worrying about us. But the servant replied, look in this town, there is a man of God. He is highly respected and everything he says comes true. Let's go there now, perhaps he will tell us what way to take? Saul said to his servant, if we go, what can we give the man? The food in our sacks is gone. We have no gift to take to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered him again. Look, he said, I have a quarter of a shekel of silver. I will give it to the man of God so that he would tell us what way to take. Formerly in Israel, if a man went to inquire of God, he would say, come, let us go to the seer because the prophet of today used to be called a seer. "'Good,' Saul said to his servant. "'Come, let's go.' So they set out for the town where the man of God was. As they were going up the hill to the town, they met some girls coming out to draw water. And they asked them, "'Is the seer here?' "'He is,' they answered. "'He's ahead of you. "'Hurry now. "'He has just come to our town today, "'for the people have a sacrifice at the high place. "'As soon as you enter the town,' You will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. The people will not begin eating until he comes, because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Go up now, you should find him about this time. They went up to the town, and as they were entering it, there was Samuel coming towards them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin anoint him leader over my people Israel. He will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked upon my people for their cry has reached me. When Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, this is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. Saul approached Samuel in the gateway and asked, would you please tell me where the seer's house is? I am the seer, Samuel replied, go up ahead of me to the high place. For today you are to eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go, and you will tell all that is in your heart. As for the donkeys you lost three days ago, do not worry about them. They have been found. And to whom is all the desire of Israel turned, if not to you and all your father's family? Saul answered, But am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel? And is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you say such a thing to me? Then Samuel brought Saul and his servant into the hall and seated them at the head of those who were invited, about thirty in number. Samuel said to the cook, bring the piece of meat I gave you, the one I told you to lay aside. So the cook took up the leg with what was on it and set it in front of Saul. Samuel said, here is what has been kept for you. Eat, because it was set aside for you for this occasion. From the time I said, I have invited guests. And Saul dined with Samuel that day. After they came down from the high place to the town, Samuel talked with Saul on the roof of his house. They rose about daybreak and Samuel called to Saul on the roof. Get ready and I will send you on your way. When Saul got ready, he and Samuel went outside together. As they were going down to the edge of the town, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to go on ahead of us. And the servant did so. But you stay here a while so that I may give you a message from God. Here ends the reading.
0: Well, if you've got your Bibles there, please keep them open at 1 Samuel chapter 9. And we're going to spend some time looking at that together again now. I'm going to pray as we do so. Heavenly Father, we do pray that uh, as we read again this part of your word and spend time reflecting and meditating on it together, that you'll give us insight into what you are saying to us. And as a result, our Our minds, our hearts, our lives will be shaped by what you want for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What is God's plan for my life? That's a question that people often ask, and it's one that I'm sure we are somewhat interested in, right? Particularly, I suppose, when we are facing decisions. You know, we've got a choice to make, and we find ourselves asking... What does God want me to do in this? You know, what, what job should I take? Where should I live? What should I do next year? What should I study? Who should I marry? Who should I go out with? What should I do with my spare time or money? And maybe you could add to that some particular decisions that maybe you're facing at the moment or have faced recently. And so we find ourselves thinking, well, you know, I wish I knew what the best choice is in this situation. And then I guess if we want to put Christian language on it, we say, well, I wish I knew what God wants me to do. What is God's plan for me in this? You know, does God want me to go this way or that way? Does God want me to do this thing or that thing? Because surely knowing that would make life decisions that much easier, right? So how do we evaluate what's God, what God's plan is for us? You know, what does he want us to do? And it seems to me as I think about this and as I speak with people that there are two common mistakes that people often make when it comes to this question of, you know, what's God's plan for my life? The first one is what I'd call Christian fatalism. Uh, That is a Christian version of just the idea of fate, you know, whatever is going to happen is going to happen. The Christian version is, well, God is in control of everything. And so what I decide, well, maybe that doesn't really matter. All that much. I'll just make my decisions and that will turn out to be God's plan because God is in control of everything. That's Christian fatalism. The other option is what I call God's roadmap. That is, God has the details of my life mapped out like on a like on a roadmap, like on a GPS with the, the Google Maps coordinates all mapped out and the course that I need to take. And my job is to make sure that at every intersection, at every junction, every choice in life, I take the turn that keeps me on the path that God wants me to take in his plan for my life. Because the last thing I want is to end up off course in God's plan for my life. You know, God wants me to be over here and I'm somehow over here. And so I've got to backtrack and work my way back onto the path. Now, you can probably hear the attraction in both of those ideas. One of them is trying to hold on to the truth that God is completely in control of everything. That's true. The other one is trying to emphasise the importance of trying to do what God wants me to do in every situation. Those are both true and good things. But hopefully as we read this passage, it will shine a bit more light on this topic so that we know how to make good decisions the way that God wants us to go that are in line with his plan. Now, you might remember from last week that the big issue that Israel are facing at the moment in this part of 1 Samuel is to do with their national leadership, their leadership problems. They're nervous about the uncertainty of their leadership and not knowing where the next leader is going to come from. And so they've got together and they've decided that what they need is a king. That's what they want and that's what they ask God for via Samuel. Give us a king. We want to be like the other nations, a king who will lead us into battle. And God recognised in that question that it was a rejection of him as their king. But he still said to his prophet Samuel, give them what they ask for. Give them a king. And that's as far as we've got so far. Samuel sends the people back home and we're left waiting to see what is going to happen. And so we begin chapter 9 with that expectation kind of hanging in the air. What's going to happen with this request for a king that God has told Samuel to give to Israel? And who is this king going to be? But when we start chapter 9 as we just have today, it kind of feels like we're going on a bit of a detour, very literally. Chapter 9 begins with what looks like a new story and a fairly mundane one at that about some guy that we've never heard of, whose son goes wandering through the countryside looking for lost donkeys. But as the story unfolds, we discover a series of remarkable coincidences, you, should, you could say, that increasingly seem like they are leading us somewhere. So let's have a look at it. The people have just asked for a king as I said and now this new guy Saul that we just met is introduced and he seems to fit the bill. You know, they've asked for a king like the other nations who can lead them into battle and Saul is literally head and shoulders above everyone else. He's a head taller than everyone else. He's the best looking guy in the country. He sounds pretty kingly And so we're obviously wondering if this is going to be the king that the people have asked for. But this is where the story seems to go a bit off course. You know, we think we're meant to be searching for a king, but here's young Saul wandering the countryside searching for lost donkeys. Let me read verses 3 and 4. Now the donkeys belonging to Saul's father, Kish, were lost. And Kish said to his son, Saul... Take one of the servants with you and go and look for the donkeys. So he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and through the area around Shalishah, but they did not find them. They went on into the district of Sha'alim, but the donkeys were not there. Then he passed through the territory of Benjamin, but they did not find them. At this point, it kind of reminds me of one of those cowboy movies where We've, just, we've cut from the main scene of the story just to watch these two cowboys on their tired old horses wandering across the countryside and you see that kind of dotted red line as they zigzag back and forth across the map. This donkey search seems a long way from the big issues of national significance and the leadership and, and the kingship of the nation that we just ended chapter 8 with. And they're clearly not having any luck finding these donkeys either. By the end of verse 4, the donkeys are nowhere to be found. But this is where the plot thickens. Because right at this point, they arrive in the district of Zuf. Verse 5. When they reached the district of Zuf, Saul said to the servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, or my father will stop thinking about the donkeys and start worrying about us. Now, wow, I hear you say, I can't believe they've arrived in Zuf. Where, where on earth is Zuf, right? If you're anything like me, your eyes probably glaze over when you hear those details of names and places that we just don't really know about. But if we've been reading 1 Samuel carefully, then just maybe that mention of Zuf will start to ring some bells for us. Because Zuf was the great 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 grandfather of our prophet Samuel and the district of Zuf was the area around the town of Ramah where Samuel lived. Samuel was a Zufite, we're told that back in chapter 1 verse 1 and so right at the point where Saul wants to turn around and go home they just happen to arrive in the area where Samuel lives, the very Samuel who God has told to give Israel the king they've asked for. So Saul wants to go home, but for some reason, his servant comes up with another idea. Somehow this servant knows that there is a man of God in this town who may be able to help them and give them some direction. Now, this man of God is not named. We're not told who he is, but I think by now we've probably got a bit of an inkling as to who this might be. So the servant makes this suggestion but Saul is not convinced. They don't have anything they could give as a gift to this man of God but somehow the servant comes up with exactly what they need. Verse (coughs) 8. Excuse me. The servant answered him again. Look, he said, I have a quarter of a shekel of silver. I will give it to the man of God so that he will tell us what way to take. What he literally says here is, Behold, there is found in my hand a quarter of a shekel of silver. Now, we don't know how this money happened to be found in his hand, but the way that he tells it, it almost sounds like he put his hand in his pocket and went, Whoa, look at that. How did that appear there? I just found this quarter of a shekel of silver in my hand. And the series of remarkable coincidences continue when they bump into some young women on their way to the town. And they ask where the seer, the prophet, is. And it just so happens that he's just arrived in town. And more than that, he's just up ahead of them. And again, if you're watching this in a movie, it's like as they look up, they just see the end of his robe as he turns the corner ahead of them. We don't quite get a full glimpse of him. But then in verse 14, we finally get to the climax we've been expecting. Verse 14, they went up to the town And as they were entering it, there was Samuel coming toward them on his way up to the high place. This series of remarkable coincidences has finally brought Saul to Samuel, the prophet who God has told to give Israel the king they've asked for. Now it's at this point that we get a significant development in the story, because this is where we hear God speak for the first time and we discover that God's word has been at work behind the scenes from the very beginning. If we look at verse 15, we actually discover that God had already spoken the day before. Let me read from verse 15 and down to verse 17. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked on my people, for their cry has reached me. When Samuel caught caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, This is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. You see, we can say all we want about these remarkable coincidences that have led up to this moment. But without these verses and what follows, all we've got is a guy wandering around the hills of Israel who just happens to bump into Samuel, the kingmaker. Up until this point, it's really just hints and hunches and remarkable coincidences, but it's the word of God that actually reveals what's happening that this is the man who God wants Samuel to anoint as the next leader of Israel. It's the word of God that reveals God's plans and even enacts God's plans as he tells Samuel what to do. And we see that continuing through the rest of the chapter. God has told Samuel that the donkeys that they're looking for have been found, they're fine. And he's even told Samuel to put aside the best meat at this feast that they're going to have for for the, for the special visitor that's about to arrive, that God would deliver. And then finally, the next day, Samuel pulls Saul aside and explains everything to him. He's been on a bizarre journey, chasing lost donkeys, finding Samuel, getting the prime rib at a banquet, and now he's about to have it all explained to him. He's about to hear God's word to him. Verse 27. As they were going down to the edge of the town, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to go on ahead of us. And the servant did so. But you stay here for a while so that I may give you a message from God. (coughs) Excuse me. Saul is about to hear a message from God. Now, the story doesn't end there, but our passage for today does. We saw about to hear the word of God to him. Next week, we'll see exactly what this word of God to Saul was. But for now, it's worth reflecting a bit about what has been going on in this chapter. What we've seen today is the unfolding plan of God. In a seemingly mundane situation, through a series of remarkable coincidences, and even mixed in with the disobedience of Israel, of God's people, like we saw last week. God is carrying out his plan through all of this. But despite all of that, it's the word of God that reveals God's plan and even that carries it out. It's the word of God that speaks into these seemingly remarkable coincidences to show what God's plan is. So what does that mean for us and God's plan for us? Because, you know, we don't have God's specific, personalised word to us as a running commentary on my particular life and God's plan for me. As much as we might want it, we don't have that. But you know, what we have is actually better than that. We have God's word for us in the flesh. We have Jesus, the word of God, who became flesh and walked among us. Jesus is the complete and final and perfect word of God, the perfect revelation of God and his plan for us. You know Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that God used to speak through the prophets like Samuel but now he has spoken by his son Jesus. The word of God that spoke into the darkness and brought the universe into being. The word of God that directed the course of Saul's footsteps to make him the next king of Israel. The word of God that controls all of history. That word became flesh for us, to reveal God to us and to carry out God's plan for us. That's where we find God's ultimate plan for us and for our world, in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, in the message of Jesus that says God's love for you cannot be stopped, that says repent and believe this good news. You want to know what God's plan is for your life? That's it for you to be made one of God's own children, dearly loved and completely forgiven, and for you to live the way that he wants you to as you wait for Jesus to return. That's the will and the plan and the purpose of God that his word has revealed. But I know, as I speak to people and even for myself, that sometimes we want more than that. Sometimes maybe we find that answer a bit dissatisfying, even if we shouldn't. Because where does that leave us with those decisions that we have to make? You know, there's an expression that I sometimes hear people say, in fact, I sometimes say myself, that speaks into this question about knowing God's plan for, for my life, particularly when it seems like God might be leading in a particular direction, and it's this. It's such a God thing I wonder if you've heard that expression. It was such a, such a God thing. You know, I, I think about myself when, when all the circumstances seem to be lining up in this direction, all the doors seem to be opening up this way and closing this way. It, it's a God thing. I've got a friend who was going through a really difficult situation in his work and it was affecting his life and, and, and for his wife as well. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, this other job opportunity came up. And it seemed like this is going to deal with all of those problems and and fix all of those problems. And I remember his wife saying, it is such a God thing. Now, at one level, yes, of course, it's a God thing. God is at work in every situation, both the good and the bad. Even when evil men put Jesus to death on a cross, that was a God thing. But what does that actually tell us? Does that mean we should commend those men for making a good decision in that case? Of course not. Should my friend and his wife see this as God telling them that they should take that job? Well, it may be a good decision. But the lining up of the circumstances, the opening of doors or the closing of others perhaps, or the way that it solves the current problems in life... That's not necessarily the way they should evaluate that. The way that we can know God's plan is by what he says, by what he tells us. And what he tells us is to make godly decisions, decisions that are in line with his character, decisions that are in line with how he wants us to live, with whatever kind of information we've got at our disposal in front of us, decisions that move me towards and not away from what God has revealed to me in Jesus. Trusting in his love for me. Living the way that he wants me to live. Wanting to be more like Jesus. And of course that will affect the decisions that we make. Whether we choose this way or that way. You know, we can't mess up God's plan for our life any more than Saul could have messed up God's plan by turning left instead of right when he got to Shalishar. Knowing God's plan for my life is not about trying to work out the road map so that I make the right turns that match God's plan and then w- or, or worry that I might have made a wrong turn and somehow gotten myself completely off course. But it also doesn't mean that we become fatalists. You know that God doesn't care about the particular decisions, about the details. God does care about that. As I said, the way that God reveals his plan is by speaking. So we need to ask, well, what kind of things does God tell us? What kind of things does God say that he wants for us in the decisions that we make about his will for our life? Does God care whether you work at KFC or Maccas? Does God care whether you live in Richmond or Agnes Banks or Argentina? Well, yes but not necessarily in the way that we think about it. God wants us to make the decision that leads us and others towards what he has revealed to us through Jesus. And if we genuinely can't decide which is the best decision in that regard, leading that direction, after speaking to wise people who care about that as well, then just go for the one that you like and trust God with how that works out. Now that's pretty liberating, I reckon, if we trust God at his word. We can be assured that God is at work, working out his plan for our lives. And as he does that, he hasn't left us guessing about what he wants for us. He wants us to find salvation through trusting Jesus and to live trusting him while we wait for his return even in the minor details of life. And that gives us both direction and confidence that we can live according to God's plan every day of our lives, including today. Let's pray that we will. Heavenly Father, it can sometimes be difficult to know what decisions to make, but perhaps even more than that father it can sometimes be difficult to make the decisions that we know are in line with what you've told us because sometimes our heart wants to go the other way and so father we do ask that you will help us to be confident that you are in control of all things and to seek first your kingdom to seek your will for how we live our lives and to be confident that you are working out your good plan in the midst of that we pray these things in jesus name amen